Welcome to Biblical Literacy 101. This is a weekly in-person class taught at Columbus Baptist Church. This course is a verse-by-verse deep dive into the scriptures. We encourage you to listen to these recordings and follow along with your Bible open. With that being said, let's get into this week's class. Um, I'm going to do very little by way of opening because uh, if you know me, I have a lot of notes on scripture and I like to give as much information as I can. So we're just going to dive in. We are in Psalm 6 and I'm hoping this, aha, and it works. (laughs) So I don't even have to look now. At least I hope I don't have to look. So... Um, so let's see. So yes, yeah, so everybody, if you, if you do have a Bible, uh, you can go ahead and open to Psalm 6. Uh, if not, that's fine. You'll be able to follow along up there. Um, and let's just dive in. Now let's see. Now what you won't see, at least in this, because the uh, digital version on Easy Worship leaves out the non-verse notes, but uh, this will open with a statement prior to verse 1, um, identifying verse 6, or chapter 6, I should say, as being uh, to the choir master with stringed instruments according to the Sheminith and a psalm of David. Um, last week we talked about the choir master and how that works um, and the identification of instruments. Uh, which actually that session is up online now. So if you do want to review that, um, it's available on the church's YouTube page in, the, in addition to a few other places. Um, but the first word that probably jumps out to you here and uh, might seem a little odd is the Sheminith. Uh, now, we don't fully know what that is uh, beyond that it is a musical term. Um, I've actually heard two options regarding the word um, referencing the number eight. Apparently, we can find the Hebrew number eight in the root of that word. Uh, The best interpretation we have from biblical scholars are that it means either a stringed instrument that happens to have eight strings, so like an eight-stringed harp, uh, or it's referring to the eighth octave or the lowest commonly sung musical range, uh, suggesting that this particular psalm is probably a dirge. It's probably much more somber in tone. Um, If you look at the whole of this psalm, it's uh, the structure of it. It's not repeated verses, much in the way that you think of a traditional song. Um, So this is probably more poetic than your normal verse-chorus format. It's almost, at least by the modern scholarly interpretations of the psalm, almost in a waveform structure. There's a a large verse, a smaller verse, a single line verse, then a slightly larger, then a great big one. It's kind of like an expanded haiku, honestly. Um, And it kind of hinges on that small line that kind of uh, boomerangs you to the other half of it. And the point of this psalm, it's referring to him, to David, being uh, exhausted from being so upset with something that's going on around him. Um, So in a way, that would would almost work, uh, I should say, that single line um, as the title for the psalm, which I believe was, well, now I can't identify it because I wrote this over a week ago. (laughs) But uh, 
The point is, note the opening and closing, the largest parts of this psalm are focused on the Lord. So that's the point. That's, we're starting with God and we're ending with God and everything else is in between. So that's kind of the focus here. Um, so with that, I'm going to jump right into the text. Psalm 6, we're going to look at verses 1 to 3, um, which are up behind me. Uh, o Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Um, that first bit there. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Um, this should not be taken to imply that the Lord could ever be wrong when he does rebuke or discipline um, in, by way of saying, God, don't do this thing to me because it's bad. That wouldn't be the intent here. Um, a few things are happening here. On one level, uh, David may be calling himself uh, and the hearer to check themselves, to make sure that they are not worthy of rebuke in the situation they find themselves. Primarily, though, I would suggest that he's using this statement to remind himself that when evil comes against us, it doesn't necessarily mean that the Lord is angry with us. Uh, not every bad thing that happens is God's discipline. Scripture does tell us that it rains on the just and the unjust alike. Not that rain is necessarily meant um, as a positive, uh, or, or I should say in that passage, rain is usually meant as a positive, but we can take the negative meaning as well, especially from Job, where he says, shall we accept good from God and not evil? Um, as in what we consider to be evil or bad. Uh, why would we expect to not be affected by evil in this world? Uh, Jesus actually tells us that we'll have trouble and tribulation in the world, especially if we're following him. So all that to say, when opposition, what he's saying here, when opposition comes against you, Yes, review the situation, see if you actually did something to cause it. But past that point, remember that God isn't just smacking you to smack you. That's just, that's not necessarily what's happening. Um, some commentators do suggest that David was actually, over the course of this psalm, suffering for something that he did. Their interpretation of this would be that David is saying, um, I accept that you, God, have the right to rebuke me for my wrongdoing, but please don't let that rebuke be out of anger. So kind of a, like, don't, please don't go too far. Um, I don't know if I align with that interpretation, but I wanted to present it as that is, uh, you know, an, an honest interpretation from scholars. Uh, let's see. He says, uh, have mercy, uh, I am faint, uh, heal me, my bones are in agony, all that language there. Um, it's pretty safe to say, I would say, that he's not in actual physical agony when he writes this. He's not wounded, per se. Um, but when we're really stressed, when we're really upset about something, uh, doesn't it affect us physically? You know, don't you kind of notice that? Um, I know for me, when I feel like things are really going wrong and they're really out of my hands and I just can't correct the course, I, I stress so much that I can't enjoy things that make me happy sometimes. Um, or like I can't sleep, or I have an upset stomach all the time. Um, so yeah, so I think he's using very extreme figurative language to identify that feeling. That's what he's talking about. Um, and yeah, that we can take that a little bit, 
to kind of say like, yeah, feel your feelings. You're gonna feel feelings, feel them, you know, but keep them in the light of the Lord. Don't stop in those moments, in those places. Um, you gotta kind of, <laughs> like this psalm, yeah, in the same way that this psalm paints a picture of feeling and experiencing those emotions, follow it to the completion, because he gets to where you need to get to. Um, he says, uh, my soul is in anguish, anguish, uh, how long? This is actually, a, it's a perfectly reasonable prayer. Um, God, what I'm going through sucks, it's awful, it hurts, how long do I have to endure it? That's fair, you know? Uh, even if the intent of this is that David was receiving some sort of punishment, um, it's still a reasonable cry from a repentant heart. Uh, Spurgeon actually said, I, I like this, uh, so we may pray that the chastisements of our gracious God, if they may not be entirely removed, may at least be sweetened by the conscious, uh, consciousness that they are not in anger, but in his dear covenant love for us. Uh, moving on. Did it change? Okay. <laughs> I'm not turning around. Not like last time where I was spent half the time looking the other way. So, <laughs> uh, verses four and five. Uh, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Um, so here we see uh, it's the start of his turn towards the correct thinking, but there's also still a bit of a slip back into sorrow. Um, turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of uh, your steadfast love or unfailing love, depending on your translation. Um, again, reasonable request for deliverance. There's nothing out of place in what he's saying here. Um, the key for us in this, I think what we really take away from how David says this, is that he's focusing on God. He's consistently focusing on God, even through the pain. The, uh, the statement of the, or the request of deliver me. Again, there's nothing wrong with simply asking for help. That's, that's always acceptable. Did I go too far? Okay, no, I didn't. <clears throat> uh, let's see. When he says, uh, save me because of your unfailing or steadfast love. Um, it's, it's, it's almost an oxymoron if we think about it long enough. The request to be saved from the problem the request is made upon the idea that God's love is unfailing or steadfast. It is perfect. So God's love cannot fail in what it purposes. So if we believe ourselves to be within God's love, and especially for us through salvation of Jesus Christ, if we believe ourselves to be within God's love, how bad can the problem really be if his love is unfailing, if his love is steadfast? Um, that statement, again, like much of the Psalms, it serves as this kind of reflective reminder back upon the speaker. Um, save me for the sake of your unfailing love. Well, that's right, his love is unfailing. Of course he will save me, of course he will bring me through. Um, it's, it's a light, it's a self, like you're shining a light on the problem, but aiming it also at God so that the, God's light can reflect on the truth of the situation. Um, Alternatively, David is recognizing potentially uh, this distance from God by his sin and seeking to close the gap. 
uh, the unfailing love being translated by some as mercy, um, your unfailing mercy, uh, could, or just your mercy, could imply recognition of being undeserving of said mercy. Um, however, I will say that I do believe, based on the Hebrew, that the actual word leans more towards that um, unfailing love, a loving kindness kind of a situation. Um, but then we get to the second half here, which um, this is one of those verses that a lot of people like to point to when they make the kind of pithy joke that David was quite emo. Um, the statement that, but then uh, among the dead, no one proclaims your name or who praises you from the grave. Um, and I would say, I see two ways to interpret this. Um, and it could even be a mixture of the two things I'm going to present here. The, I will say the statement is not being made with heaven or hell in mind. That's something we should go into with that forefront of the mind. Um, we know uh, that in heaven we will continue to praise God. You know, through salvation, uh, once dead, you know, to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. Um, in heaven, we will continue to praise God. In death, in the grave, we continue to praise God. Um, we don't 100% know what David's full grasp of eternity was. Um, he didn't have the complete scripture. Um, he knew he rested in God somehow, but the full extent, you can go through the Psalms and try to suss that out, but just to say that it, it seems that he's not uh, acting from a full, complete, solid knowledge to make such a statement. Um, which, by the way, too, it's uh, where it says, in Sheol, who will save you, who will give you praise. Sheol, of course, being the uh, Hebrew word for the grave or death or where dead bodies were, were, were placed. Um, let's see, where was I? <clears throat> so first, uh, the more whiny view of the situation. Um, it's, uh, he's, what he's saying, if you take it this way, is, uh, well, God, if you don't save me, I'll die. And then how will I praise you if I'm dead? Um, so it's kind of a, like I said, that emo bargaining angle kind of a situation. Um, it does fit with the emotional state he's in. Um, but the other view for this is, I do still praise him. This statement is a reminder. Uh, I'm not dead, physically or spiritually. If I'm not dead, I'm not too far gone. He must still be with me for who can praise him from the grave? So it's that serves as that reminder. And it, like I said, it could be both. It could be both. He could be whining, and he also could be reminding himself that he is not indeed dead, and he may continue to praise his Lord. Um, let's look now. Should be six and seven up there. Okay. I'm very happy that this is working. <laughs> um, so, verse six. Uh, the... Small verse. Uh, some translations will section out the first half of verse six, and that kind of becomes this uh, this hinge line um, where he says, uh, "I'm I'm weary with my moaning. Uh, every night I flood my bed with tears." Um, or oh, I'm sorry, specifically, I'm weary with my moaning. That that line gets sectioned out in some passages. And that, let's say I said, that line some people take as like, oh, that's, that's almost like the theme of this passage. And they place that even as the title for the passage. I am weary with moaning. <laughs> um, and it, it, once again, that single line 
kind of serves two purposes. Um, the literal, you know, what's obvious, I'm exhausted from sorrow, I'm overcome with grief, it's taken all of my strength, like we talked about, that natural response to stress and sorrows. But two, it's almost like an I'm over it. Um, I'm tired of this groaning. I'm tired of this sorrow, and I recognize it's time to move on. Uh, and I do kind of take it that way, because the next couple statements he makes are very poetic, very exaggerated, and it almost to be, seems to be a, uh, a self-chiding for, for what he's been. Um, so moving on in that passage, the every night I flood my bed with tears, I drench my couch, uh, couch with weeping, um, my eye wastes away because of grief, it grows weak because of all my foes. Um, if you come at this from a very literal, this is how he's responding, then the argument that he's being whiny or over-exaggerating makes sense. Um, and, uh, and of course, he's definitely be being, being very poetic, very figurative. Uh, but like I said, I do think this is less of him trying to garner sympathy and more him reflecting on his behavior. Um, so as you know, I've uh, basically, it, it, I've been crying so much, I might as well have soaked my bed with my tears. Or, you know, I probably ruined my, eye, my eyesight from crying so hard, you know. Well you, well, you look at how I've been behaving, you know. I might as well have drowned people how much I've been crying. It's kind of a pull it together, man. Um, uh, also for fun, <laughs> I like the, when it says, uh, every night I flood my bed with tears, um, in the, the, the literal translation of that in Hebrew, is I make my bed swim all night long. <laughs> Which I thought was kind of fun. <laughs> so like, it's, it, I'm crying so much, I might as well be paddling my bed down the river, you know, kind of a thing. Uh, <laughs> all right, moving on to our, our wrap up on this first. This is a short one, seven's gonna be the long one tonight. Um, <laughs> Uh, eight to ten, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Um, so here we see him reminding himself who the Lord is and remembering his place before the Lord. Um, Spurgeon, actually, in his commentary on the Psalms, which I do recommend, he has a fantastic commentary on the Psalms, um, but he actually suggested that this chunk here from verse 8 on, the singers, when this was sung in a group, collectively, they would have abandoned that lower octave and switched to a more upbeat tone and a more uh, even voice. It would have been easier to sing because now... We're, we're reminding ourselves of good and we're praising. So now it's, we come out of that sorrowful beginning. Um, again, uh, we don't know 100%, but that was his, his, uh, his take on it. Uh, so he starts off with depart from me or away from me, uh, you workers of evil or evil men. Um, and isn't that often, I think, where we wind up when we finally get over ourselves? We let ourselves kind of look at the problems around us and the evil that we've let come close to us. Not always people, sometimes things or situations, but usually we have let something close to us. Um, and when we step, then at that point, we step away from it, we take action to move away. Um, and that realization of how much sorrow could have been saved 
if we were to part from those things before we got overwhelmed. Uh, uh, Bible commentator uh, David Guzik commented on the uh, importance of separating from ungodly associations um, by recounting uh, a fellow by the name of J. Edwin Orr describing some work among new converts in fa uh, Halifax, actually, during the Second Great Awakening. Uh, pardon me, I cannot speak tonight. <laughs> during the Second Great Awakening in Britain. There we go. Uh, so the, the quote goes, among them was a boxer who had just won a money prize and a belt. A crowd of his erstwhile companions stood outside the hall in order to ridicule him, and they hailed the converted boxer with a shout. He's getting converted. What about the belt? He'll either have to fight for it or give it up. The boxer retorted, I'll both give it up and you up. If you won't go with me to heaven, I will not go with you to hell. He then gave them back the belt, and in doing so, persuaded some of them to accompany him to the services, where at least another of them was converted. So I, I thought that was a very good example uh, of that kind of final moment there. Um, he then declares, the Lord has heard my weeping, he's heard, or he's heard my cry, he accepts my prayer. Um, this, I will say even, is not necessarily implying that he's already seen some miraculous answer to his problem. He's just remembering that God promises that he does hear us when we pray. He does love us, and he does have a plan, even if we can't see it from where we are. Um, uh, I, I feel like I put this a little later on than I should have, but in reference to the sorrowful prayer and the prayer you know, that accompanies the tears of the believer, um, I thought it was interesting that in some of his sermons, uh, Charles Spurgeon would refer to the tears of the believer as liquid prayers offered to the Lord. Um, now look at the, the statement of God's action towards the enemies. Um, and all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Um, note how that's entirely in the future tense. This is something that is to happen. Um, he hasn't seen it, but he does know that God says no wickedness goes unpunished. So even if he doesn't see it in his lifetime, he knows that statement to be true. Uh, and also, look at the punishment specifically. He's not calling for death or plague or destruction upon his enemies. He calls for shame and anguish. One, not dissimilar from what he's been feeling, honestly, which is kind of a, a fair uh, response. It's that kind of, I don't want to say eye for an eye, but more of an appropriate response. You're not asking for more uh, punishment meted out than the suffering that was caused. Um, this is also a part of duality that plays a big role in Hebrew poetry, that kind of, but he felt it. That's what you know, he mentions for his enemies. But second, his anguish drove him to a specific course, and that course was seeking the Lord wherein he found correct focus and peace. If our enemies face righteous shame and righteous anguish for their actions, the hope is that they too will not be annihilated, but turn to a proper relationship with the Lord. This punishment that he requests drives to repentance, not to death. So, that was Psalm 6. And now we're going to move right on ahead to Psalm 7, because this one 
This one's a little weighty. All right, uh, Psalm 7. Um, in the text, it'll start with a shigeon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Uh, this was fun to look up. <laughs> um, shigeon or shigeon, it's another musical term we actually don't understand. We don't really know what that means. It appears twice in scripture, here in the singular, and Habakkuk in the plural. Uh, scholars have tried to identify the roots of it, and they've come to a number of conclusions, usually based on one specific part of the word or another, um, but there's no consensus, really, because we only have a couple references to it. So uh, I believe, though, from looking at everybody's argument on it, that there's kind of a, a reasonable definition rises to the surface. Um, the primary definitions that kind of came up about this one were um, a wild, mournful ode, a song of strong passion, or to reel about as through drink. And I think all of those combined do give us a good picture of what this is supposed to be. And I think the clearest example of what this is meant to be can be found kind of culturally in the way of how many European cultures handle funeral gatherings. And I'm specifically referring to like, at least to, to what I'm aware of, uh, places like Poland and Scotland, Italy, Ireland tends to become the butt of the joke a lot of times for this sort of a thing, even though it's not really <laughs> exclusive to them. But the images of a grieving group gathering together and they wind up sharing two things together, drink and song. Uh, the alcohol tends to help those present lower their guard, so emotions can flow more freely. Uh, culturally, that's often the only time you'll see the men of some of these areas show that kind of emotion. Um, and then the song comes out as an outpouring of these emotions, and it unites everyone present. Um, so I don't know if you've ever been to uh, a funeral proceeding like that, but the songs are very communal, and by that virtue, full of life in that sense, while at the same time, lyrically full of sorrow and death. Um, though many do have a call back to the hope of Christ in heaven. So like, for example, if you're, uh, so stuff like Danny Boy in the Parting Glass, uh, at least the original translation of the Parting Glass. Um, and I think that's kind of what we're getting at here. That's the kind of song this is. That's the feel that we're going for. Uh, then when it mentions Cush, a Benjamite, this is another item. We have almost nothing to go on. Um, I was able to distill it down to three uh, ideas for who or what this could be. Uh, one, that it's a, specifically a man named Cush. We do have precedent in scripture of that being a name, um, who came from the tribe of Benjamin, who had some specific problem with David. Uh, scholars who take that stance suggest that this psalm may have been written very shortly after David became king, and that this person was trying to drum up some conspiracy against him, maybe even considering him a usurper of Saul. Uh, Cush could potentially be a stand-in name for Saul, uh, similar to how the Apostle John, uh, to not draw attention to himself, refers to himself in his gospel, not by name, but as a disciple Jesus loved, so as not to make himself, uh, you know, to make himself indistinguishable from the others. Um, like an, it could be any of them sort of a thing. So the idea would be that David wants to get this information out, but he doesn't want to slander Saul at the same time, so he invents this stand-in name to use. 
Then the other possibility is that it's purely metaphorical, um, designed to encompass anyone who had done such things against David. Uh, Cush also being the name for a particular group of people found near Egypt, and Benjamin being an Israelite tribe located more centrally in Israel. Um, So metaphorically, it could be reasoned that it's Cush, a name from outside of us, comes from Benjamin, which is the center of us. So uh, kind of an everyman. You know, it could literally be anyone. It encompasses those outside and those inside. Uh, Kind of like when... Paul says, Jews and Gentiles, just just quick, catch everybody. Um, Personally, over the course of reading this passage, my own view kind of bounced around on this uh, because of the possibilities that it pertains, but I kind of do wind up thinking it's a metaphor at the end of the day. Um, But I will mention where people kind of point out uh, the other items as well. Um, So, we'll hop into... Oh, I've already got it up there. Uh, verses 1 and 2. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. Um, in you do I take refuge. Some translations say in you do I put my trust. But refuge winds up being closer to the actual word. Uh, it does imply, uh, which, which does imply, fleeing a danger, seeking refuge or shelter. Um, it's, the word implies the imagery of safety behind the walls of a castle or fortress. Um, and uh, uh, let's see, I'll skip that. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. I did think it was interesting. Spurgeon uh, refers to this uh, psalm as the song of the slandered saint, which I thought was pretty neat. Um, he says, even this sorest of evils may furnish occasion for a psalm. What blessing it would be if we could turn even the most disastrous event into a theme for a song and so turn the tables upon our great enemy. Um, and I was, isn't that true of good worship music? It's, it's led out of a sober heart, aware of our sin, yet pointing to God as the only source of salvation. Um, so anyway, uh, he says, uh, like a lion, he refers to the lion. And this is uh, an interesting choice because oftentimes you'll see, you know, uh, be torn apart like a pack of wolves or uh, by like, hyenas or something or jackals. We see a lot of packs, but he specifically says a singular lion. Um, he kind of jumps, te- uh, not tense, what is it, plural versus singular, back and forth here. They like a. Um, some argue that this is proof that Cush is Saul, because lion being kind of kingly and regal, perhaps. Um, I would submit, however, this is probably, I mean, Scripture tells us that David had actually killed a lion in his time as a shepherd. So my submission would be that he knows what they're capable of, even just a singular one, and that's why he's referring to the destructive force they bring. Um, If you want a very different take on this, check out Spurgeon's commentary on this psalm. Um, It's much more sermonal than what we're doing here, but he presents the accuser in this scenario as the devil himself. Um, Let's see. Also, much in the same way uh, last week that we talked about how breaking teeth is less about hurting someone and more about... Um, removing power or threat. In this case, being torn apart by the lion, this visceral image, is not meant to imply his own physical death, but the lion, you see, it threatens to tear his soul apart, is what he says. This is referring to personal, emotional, situational damage. 
the idea of destroying someone's life or livelihood as opposed to physically harming them. Um, see how he caps it off? Uh, he says, from this attack, there is none to deliver. Um, as mentioned, David has killed a lion in his time as a shepherd. Uh, he's also a warrior. He's killed many men in battle. Uh, he's the kind of guy that, you know, wild stories get written about who winds up surrounded by men and comes out unharmed. Um, point I'm getting at, he's a guy who knows how to handle himself physically. This is more support that this is emotional, situational, rather than physical threat. Um, also, uh, more importantly, this is an indirect statement that... Uh, harkens back to the opening there. There is none to deliver, but he takes refuge in God, meaning that he recognizes that God is the only one who can deliver him. He's clarifying that without God, this destruction that he can't prevent uh, could also not be prevented by any other human force imaginable. Um, I think that's important for us to remember because often we are taught to pray to ask God to, say, fill in the gaps, that we are mostly sufficient, but we pray so that God can take up our slack. Uh, I believe this is aiming to remind us that we are not sufficient. Without God, we are open to all sorts of destruction, whether we realize it or not, and only God can make us truly secure. Uh, verses 3 to 5, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Uh, this, I think, is one of the clearest examples of Hebrew poetic conventions that I've probably ever seen. Um, before I get to that, uh, let me clarify, this is not pride talking. David is not saying, God, I'm sinless, and I'm sure that I'm so sinless that I'm going to say, kill me if I'm not sinless. No, he's, the, the, that's why he says that if I have done this, um, he's referring to actual accusations brought against him. If I have done these things, basically. Um, and I'll submit that he's being honest with the punishment, too. God, if I have truly done wrong here, if I'm really in the wrong, then this would be a worthy punishment. Um, this would be to punish me accordingly. Um, or at least, you know, God, the accusations do warrant terrible punishment, but I am claiming innocence of these specific crimes. It's almost like a courtroom defense statement. Um, and then if you look at the two specific infractions he mentions, to repay a friend or one at peace with me with evil, or to plunder, uh, to draw out, take from. Uh, when that word is used with a positive connotation, it's usually used for equipping, for war, to fully equip. So the negative uh, is an equal fullness to remove from. Um, so if he does that to an enemy without cause. So essentially robbing from someone who you might be opposed to, but not in a spoils of war sort of way, just in like greed or because I can out of power. Um, and he's saying that this is unacceptable, even if you're enemies with that person. Um, but you see how it's, um, if I have given wrong or taken from, um, it's, it's an all-encompassing action uh, if I've done evil. Um, and then, uh, yes, so he's also declaring himself worthy of judgment regardless of who the victim might be. Yes, of course, if you wrong a friend, everybody would expect that you'd be punished accordingly. But he also says he's worthy of punishment if he's done wrong to an enemy. 
Um, uh, it it's, may indeed be a general response indicating the type of accusations against him, but I think we're supposed to take this in this broad format if I have done any of these things. Um, then look at the deserved punishment. Uh, pursue my soul and overtake it. Uh, probably referring to his life situation. This would be the destruction of his standing and position, uh, any pride or rank. Uh, trample my life to the ground could be synonymous with the concept of dragging one's name through the mud, trample my life to the ground, uh, ruination of character. Though I will say it could also be referring to physical death. That is also a possibility here. Um, lay my glory in the dust. The use of glory here could be solidifying that the whole of the punishment is with regards to his person, position, character, um, as opposed to physical life, but it could also be encompassing everything there. Um, either way, the in the dust is a very specific image. Uh, whether or not he means physical death, he is using death language. And for a dead person to be left in the dust by that culture was to show them the height of contempt. Uh, even your enemies were supposed to be given some kind of respectful burial proceedings. You were supposed to permit enemies to bury their dead, and you were supposed to show even greater uh, concern for your own dead. Um, but to leave a body to the dust or to rot in the street, as it were, um, that's to treat a person as so low and so filthy that they deserve no respect, not even in death. So, and he's using these harsh words upon himself as an acknowledged punishment for such a sin. Um, but to the, I mentioned the poetic thing. If you look at these descriptions, uh, you can see that each one of them follows a series of steps inward. There's a narrowing of scope and focus walking down on these. Um, in the first half, is the, there's the physical drawing inward that begins with, if I have done this, so there's a, there's a broad this that comes out there. If I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, now he's bringing it close, and in my hands, hands usually refers to deeds, so within my deeds. So this, outer scope, in my hands, personal scope. Then if I've repaid a friend with evil, that's giving out. So outer scope, personal scope, something I do, and then if I have plundered something, I take. Drawing Everything is a step closer to him personally. Um, and then when we look at the next portion, let the, this one's, I think, even clearer. Uh, you can see the poetic structure in this. Let the enemy pursue my soul, that, you know, from a distance, coming close, overtake it, catch up to, trample, trample, <laughs> um, and then lay my glory in the dust, or leave it in the dust, so to speak. Move forward, go past. Um, it's a, an image that almost sounds like somebody being overrun in a race or being trampled by a crowd. His, the image of him is still, but the evil is approaching and passes by victorious in that scenario. Uh, let's see. I think this should stand to us as a sobering reminder that personal power should be taken very seriously. Um, once again, I don't think this is some sort of prideful cry of I didn't do anything wrong. It's a sober statement. I submit my innocence, but I'm fully aware that there's consequences for such a thing if done. Um, and I think that's a good idea to remember that we approach God in this way. Um, as none of us ever has a right to blanketly state I've done nothing wrong. 
uh, you might not have done this wrong, but you've definitely done something wrong. Uh, and I think this was intended to be a very important statement. We were supposed to spend time considering this especially because there is a selah that follows this. And usually we do tend to believe that would mean that there'd be a break, probably a musical break, and that would cause the singers to dwell on this. All right, I'm gonna push a little bit further, but I probably won't finish everything. Um, six and seven, I won't dwell on too much. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered among you. Uh, over it, return on high. Uh, once again, I'm not going to dwell on this one too much because I feel like what this covers was kind of covered last week um, and the week before in that idea of uh, asking God something not to get him to do something, but to remind yourself of what he does. Um, I will say, though, that in verse 7, the assembly of the peoples, um, that is referring to the majority of the people of Israel. And the language used there is the same language you would use regarding uh, referencing the gathering to hear a decree of some sort, uh, like a judgment being handed down by a king. Um, so basically... He's saying that everybody is, will gather to uh, the word of the Lord, not to what he says or what he thinks, but to what God says and what God decrees, that we are to gather around God's word and submit ourselves to it. Uh, so let's see. 8 to 11. Well, maybe I can finish. Uh, the Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. O righteous God, my shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to look at eight really quick, because I think this is one that could be easily twisted or accidentally used to imagine that, again, David might be uh, haughty here. Um, he's not saying that he possesses any self-righteousness. <coughs> um, <clears throat> pardon me. And he's not saying that he possesses some supreme integrity. If you take this passage within the context, especially of David's other psalms, um, even more specifically what we looked at last week in Psalm 4, you can see clear statements that David understands his righteousness only comes from God. Um, so that's another reason that we do need to take things in context. We have to look at you know, surrounding passages to understand his heart in the matter. He knows his righteousness comes from God. Um, now, probably the, the funnest part of this, if you look towards the end of nine, uh, you'll see you who test the minds and hearts. Uh, and some of your Bibles will either have a footnote saying hearts and kidneys, uh, or might have them in that place. Here's the part that makes it even weirder. Mind is not the thing being replaced with kidneys. When it says heart, it says mind and heart, and then heart and kidney, heart, uh, mind is turning into heart, and heart is turning into kidney. That's how that works there. Um, so this brings up a question that people tend to come up with as they start digging deeper into the Bible. Why do body parts get swapped out in weird places, <laughs> especially depending on translations? Um, 
There's two reasons that this tends to happen. I'll try to give a brief example of each, not to dwell on it. One is modesty translations. Um, there are some parts where some of the terminology or descriptions used refer often to body parts, specifically uh, genitalia, and it's referring to customs and ideas that make no sense to us now, so it gets adjusted um, to make people comfortable. There's not too many instances of this in the Bible, but one I will mention just to give you an example. When the servant that Abraham sends out to find a wife for his son Isaac um, is about to leave, Abraham has him, and you'll see in Genesis in most Bibles it says he places the servant's hand under his thigh uh, to, to have the servant swear an oath to him. So that sounds odd, and scholars will try to be like, oh, well, it's a dominance thing. You're sitting on his hand to show dominance. Well, the actual original language translation of that, most scholars suggest now, meant that he had the man's hand placed over his genital area. The reason being to swear on his progeny, that he would go out and find this bride for his son who would continue the line that God had promised him. So the swear is, it's less upon a body part and more upon the link of that to God's promise, which is a strange thing for us, but culturally it wouldn't have been as strange there. Um, so that's one reason sometimes body parts get swapped. The other one is just cultural context. Um, we gotta remember these Psalms were written by a Hebrew poet in a Hebrew dialect full of Hebrew shorthand and imagery. And it would have made sense to a Hebrew audience, not necessarily to an American audience. A lot of times in the Bible, when, where we would say, I love you with all my heart. They say, I love you with all my intestines. Or I love you with all my stomach. Why? Well, because what, what's the, the saying we have if you're in love? Oh, I feel butterflies in my stomach. You know? Well, it's because you tend to physically feel your emotions in this area. We know that the heart pumps the blood and keeps the body alive, so we use the heart as the metaphor thing. But they didn't. So sometimes in the Bible, where it normally says stomach, now it says heart, because that makes more sense to us, and it doesn't damage the, the scripture. Um, so that's what we have here. The, um, that's where it says heart, it's referring to what they would have considered for heart. Not emotion, but your innermost being. Your heart is who you truly are. So that's something we typically say mind for now. We say because we know that your consciousness is housed up here. The kidneys were used to describe that which drives a man. They were considered and kind of are one of the most sensitive parts of the human body. So it's the part that has to be protected um, and by protecting that, it's causing you to carry yourself in a specific way. So it drives you. Um, and you might be noticing here that these two things sound like they do a lot of the same thing, metaphorically. Um, and that's fair. That's true. He's doubling down on a metaphor. God tests the inmost being of a person, the very thing that makes them who they are. And by test, I will say the um, original word there would be probe. Um, and not the image that we get from like alien abduction movies, more like think uh, ancient uh, early autopsy when, you know, like the famous painting of the Renaissance men taking the body apart, that was probing, to take something apart piece by piece until you understood every part of it. So he's basically saying that God 
understands you to that degree. God knows your innermost bits to the most explicit detail. Uh, when he says, my shield is with God, um, of course, meaning that, you know, defense comes from God. Uh, I did think it was interesting that the word for shield there comes from the word that would describe the scales of a crocodile. So it does kind of uh, imply like a full covering of defense, um, which I thought might be, that's some fun new Christianese we can try to work into things, you know, like instead of hedge of protection, may God bless you with scales. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, then God is a righteous judge. Uh, I don't want to let that pass too quickly. In our modern world, we see people advocating for a God who does not judge. But scripture constantly reminds us that he is a judge. But he is righteous in his judgment. He's the only truly perfect judge. Um, and he feels indignation every day. That one I, I really want to look at too. Uh, when we think of indignation, I think uh, we tend to negativize is that a word? I don't care. Um, that word, and say, oh, don't be so indignant. Uh, oh, there he or she goes again, getting all indignant. But the word is actually a positive word. It has positive connotation. It literally means to be angry or disturbed or annoyed to the point of action by that which is unjust, offensive, or unfair. So to say that God is consistently indignant, or every day he is indignant, some translations will say, Every day he is angry at evil, which is fair, because the point is that God never ceases to be angry at that which is unjust or evil. The very nature of God sets him against such things, injustice and wickedness. Um, and if we find ourselves participating in such a thing, we do find ourselves against God, and God doesn't take a day off. Uh, I'm going to try to speed through this last chunk. Um, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making arrows, fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil, is pregnant with mischief, and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, falls into the hole that he has made. Oh, I'm going further, aren't I? Um, <clears throat> well, still, I'll read it. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull, violence descends. Okay, that first chunk, God will wet his sword. A wet stone, it's, if you don't know, it's, an, it's a particular type of stone. You would get it wet, and then you would rub it along the edge of a blade to sharpen it uh, before battle. Um, bent and ready this bow. It's, it's the process you would take to prepare your bow for war because you don't leave it strong or it'll break. Um, prepared fiery arrows. Uh, it's, it's, it's all war siege imagery, preparing for a battle. Um, but... Amidst all of this, there is, I would say, a small blessing in this. Everything he's describing, while capable of causing devastating damage, if carried out against you, takes a lot of time to prepare. This is not instant punishment. God does not judge us quickly. He takes time to ready his judgment. So David is basically reminding you, while you draw breath, you have a chance to repent. Um, and now we have this... Uh, very interesting metaphorical look at uh, the wicked and how their sins turn upon them. And once again, we have that poetic stepping through, that kind of continuing um, in a focus. Um, the wicked man conceives evil. He plans it in his heart. Uh, it begins with his wicked desires. And then, of course, conception being when a child is, is begun. But then the wicked man becomes pregnant with mischief. 
The wicked plan grows inside him like a child and its mother. Conception, pregnancy. He then gives birth to lies. Enacting the sin is like a birth, bringing the wickedness from inside him into a real-world effect. And then we continue to digging a pit. Um, so it's kind of a parallel to the first one, but it also does, in a way, continue. Um, he's trying to carry out this wicked plan, digging the pit. Falls into the hole he made. At the end of the day, all who sin and do not repent fall into the hole they made. They might not face repercussions here on this earth, but in death, without salvation, they fall into their own sin. Um, and then his mischief falls upon his own head. The dirt moved by his sinful planning, the actions he took, are the very things that condemn him, falling back upon him. And then on his skull, the violence descends. It's pretty visceral imagery, but it's definitely intended to make you think of the crushing of the skull and how finite that action is. Um, and it's, it's also kind of a continuation from the birth imagery. We have you know, conception, pregnancy, birth, action, followed by the grave and death, which in its own way is a weird sort of twisting because it should be death, grave. But it's flipped to suggest that the wicked come to an early end. It's a great warning. And then finally, verse 17. I will give to the Lord the thanks due his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. Uh, he caps it off as he tends to do, thanking God for being God. That's what it means to him. It, uh, that's what it means to thank God due to his righteousness, to praise him simply for the fact that he is the only true and properly self-righteous being. Um, I, uh, I think I'd also add, uh, it's a reminder to sing God's praises, uh, or that the reminder to sing God's praises is both general, it is a praise statement, but it's also a sober reminder. Um, the psalm does indeed praise God, but it also does so by acknowledging that our sin deserves vicious punishment, and we would indeed receive that if not for God's mercy. Um, though do note how joyous this final verse is by comparison to the really intense bits before. Uh, again, we see this pattern in David's psalms especially, um, covering some very heavy, sorrowful, terrifying ground, but then ending on these high notes of praise. Um, it's dangerous for us to spend all of our time in rapturous praise, ignoring the weight of our sin, but at the same time, it's also dangerous to only focus on mourning for our sin and never enjoying the presence of God. We need a mix of those things. Um, and I think the Psalms do a very good job of guiding us in that way. Um, so yeah, so that is, that is what I have for six and seven. Um, does anybody have any questions? Yes. Okay, so he is using language that would describe uh, the assembly of the peoples would generally be talking about the population of an area or the subjects to a ruler. So he's talking about, on the surface level, like the people of Israel, the assembly of the people. And he's using this image of the assembly of the people being gathered around the king or the king's man to hear a decree. Um, but then metaphorically, he, he's making it uh, the larger uh, body of believers, which would include him gathering around God as king to obey his decree.
Uh, anybody else? Okay, well then, uh, thank you all for coming. <laughs> thank you for listening to this week's class. If you are between the ages of 18 to 40 and you're interested in joining us in person, class is held every Friday night beginning at 6.30 p.m. at Columbus Baptist Church. You can find us online at cbcnj.com. That's cbcnj.com. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next week.